Well, I'm delighted to continue our study in 1 John this morning with you. So if you are able, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 as we look at verses 26 through 29. We're going to be reading and learning about verses 26 through 29. So with your finger there, follow with me. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. The general outline for this sermon is going to be four-part. Number one, in verse 26, John is warning of a present danger. A present danger. Two, in verse 27, John is reminding of a present advantage. So we have a present danger in verse 26 and a present advantage in verse 27. Then John is encouraging our proper motivation. That's verse 28. And then lastly, in verse 29, John is grounding that in our proper confidence. So present danger, present advantage, proper motivation proper confidence. That's going to be the outline of today's sermon. But before we get there, I think this will will set us up for learning what the Lord will teach us today out of 1 John. Consider Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, we have at the beginning the calling of the 12 apostles. In verses 1 through 4, we see that calling. And then in verses 5 through 15, Jesus sends them out. So Jesus calls them, and then he sends them out. And as he's sending them out, he follows up with a warning. In verses 16 through 25, he warns us, actually he warns them, John is going to be warning us. He warns the apostles of the persecution that will come as a result of him calling them and sending them out. But in verses 26 through 33 of Matthew 10, Jesus says, have no fear. Have no fear. And I want to zoom in on the uh, word of our Lord given to the apostles in this introduction uh, concerning the persecution that will come. I think it will be instructive as we look at what 1 John is teaching us today. Jesus says this to the apostles. He says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to be given will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So John is encouraging the apostles by telling them that they're going to have help. That when they stand before these persecutors, they are going to have help. And then following where Jesus talks about not having fear because of this, listen to what he says in verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father 
who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father, who is in heaven. Now what I think you might see at the end of that little section there where Jesus is saying not to fear and then doubles down by saying anybody who doesn't have me doesn't have the Father, I think you'll recognize what John was saying in our previous message when he wrote to those in his care that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Where would John have gotten that? Well, we read in Matthew, it was right after Jesus called the apostles to himself. And he said that very thing. We've seen in our study in 1 John, time and time again, how this epistle correlates to John's gospel. And we're going to see that again today. Truly, brothers and sisters, comparing Scripture with Scripture helps us to understand more fully what any given text means. We dare not isolate ourselves to a text and lock out the other scriptures that surround it. As we've heard in this congregation time and time again, the context of any text is every text. But in Matthew 10, the reason I use it as an introduction is the springboard into this section in 1 John, which is in the midst of of spiritual warfare, we need not fear. We have been given a real present and precious advantage. We have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. And so as this section that we're looking at today actually concludes a pericope of sorts, a, a section which is concerning the Antichrist's warning concerning this persecution that was in the church in the first century and, brothers and sisters, is still in the church today. I want to just read this whole pericope before we jump in to verse 26. And I, I pray that as I do this, things that we've already covered will start coming to mind and this will gel as a unit of text and an argument in John's case. In verse 18, which begins this section, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. And now here's our section. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, has been born of him. Now let's look at verse 26 in light of that larger argument. John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Our first heading was, John is warning of a present danger. 
The Apostle John here in this verse is summing up this section on spiritual warfare, which was commonplace for his spiritual children in the first century. And we've talked about the context of 1 John, about what was happening in the early church. The apostles, at least John, was still alive. There was an apostolic doctrine that was being passed around in the early church through epistles, through preaching. And there was this threat of what is known as proto-Gnosticism, teaching of a different Jesus, of a different gospel, of a different Christian ethic. And there were those in the congregations around the ancient world that were being thrown around by this strange doctrine. And we've mentioned time and time again how the Apostle John is showing that these false teachers who were in the church had no authority and that what they were teaching was not true. And not only that, but that they could be identified in the church as being not of the truth. And John has shown us time and time again, how do we identify someone who is among us who is not truly of us? And so this is a summation statement when John says, I write these things. In a sense, he's talking about the warnings of the coming of these antichrists and the antichrist who is still to come in John's day. But in a way, we can understand he's saying all of these things that he's writing to them as it concerns those who are trying to deceive them. John will later, in another epistle, say, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. See, the thing that was under attack was Christology, and likewise the Trinity. The very thing that we prayed for with this institution that's being formed in Bakersfield, Radius Theological Institute, has a burden for Trinitarian theology. And with that comes a Christological theology. It was, it's as important today as it was in the first century. The doctrine of Christ was under attack then, and it's under attack now. And we drew that out a little bit last week when we discussed cults and how they confess a false Christ and how we saw John saying that if you don't have the true Christ, if you don't confess the true Christ, you don't have the true Father either. There are many cults who say they have Christ, that they believe in Christ. But is it the true Christ? Is it the trice that is confessed and proclaimed in the pages of Holy Writ? That is the question. And so John is saying, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Because he's been describing them, but he's also teaching the true doctrine of Christ while he describes them and shows his spiritual children how they can be observed. And this isn't anything new. The book of Proverbs says the righteous person is a guide to his neighbor. And I would stop there as I, before I continue the rest. A righteous person is a guide to his neighbor. And by that, I don't mean self-righteous, as if you're righteous in and of yourself. But brothers and sisters, remember in the context of 1 John, if you have the anointing, if you believe and confess the true Christ and you have been born of him, you are righteous because you have Christ's righteousness. And if you have Christ's righteousness, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit, and brothers and sisters, you are a guide to your neighbors, maybe the people you work with, maybe those in your family, certainly our children. You're a guide to them because you know the truth. This is going to be John's argument as he goes forward. You know the truth. You have the teacher of the Holy Spirit abiding in you. But Proverbs goes on. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. If you, don't, if you aren't clothed in Christ's righteousness, then you're leading your neighbor astray ultimately when it comes to spiritual things. That's certain. 
It is true by God's common grace we can be a guide to our neighbors if we're unbelievers in, in certain categories. I might be an unbeliever and teach you how to manage your money. I may be an unbeliever and teach you even how to um, be a good worker. Even by God's grace, I can teach you how to have good manners, things that correspond to the moral law, how to not bear false witness. But if I am not clothed in Christ's righteousness, I will not confess to you the grounds, the foundation of why those things are true. And I certainly will be led astray in my own thinking because I am not anointed. The Holy Spirit does not abide in me and lead me into all truth, but rather I am led astray because the way of the wicked leads astray. Proverbs 12, 26. And so the apostle's warning here corresponds to the spiritual battle that even we find ourselves in as followers of Christ. And another apostle reminds the church of the armor of Christ that is necessary for such a battle. The spiritual armor of God. Turn with me, if you're able, to Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to show you a very interesting connection here between what John is writing and what the apostle Paul has written. Now certainly this armor that is being spoken of, again, just like it's not our righteousness that we wear, it's Christ's righteousness, this is not our armor that we produce in and of ourselves, but rather is Christ's armor that we are clothed in. Not only, not only are you clothed in righteousness, brothers and sisters, but you're clothed in the clad of Christ. And in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says this, Put on the whole armor of God. In other words, put on Christ that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation. And I want you to pay attention to this last part. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Praise God we did that this morning before we entered the study of this portion of Scripture. But, uh, but Paul says something about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now what's interesting here is that Paul is mingling. These are all spiritual gifts, first of all. All these are spiritual gifts. But Paul explicitly links the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, with the Word of God. And I find it interesting that in 1 John here, he says, I write these things to you. The writing here is Scripture. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And so we have a, a mingling of sorts here with the Word and the Spirit. And John's argument is going to be concerning the Spirit, but it's interesting that it's all in the context of what he's writing. What he's writing. Because we take part in the same spiritual battles today. We need this same armor. We need the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. But we don't just need the word of God. We need the spirit, the anointing, because there is a present danger. And we have the same word of God, the same armor of Christ for our protection. These are the spiritual weapons for our enemies. And the apostle John, by his writing, 
also calls our attention to that advantage that we have against the enemies of truth. And that brings us into our next heading, is that we have a present advantage. Look with me. John is reminding, in verse 27, of this very present advantage. But, he says, the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so this is this present, this present advantage that they had in the first century that we have today. The anointing, the Holy Spirit. John here is continuing to unpack again, as we've seen previously, the truth of what would be a reality in the new covenant. In the new covenant, this would fall upon every believer in the household of faith. Remember Jeremiah 31? We've cited it several times. I'll remind you of verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And so we'll unpack this further, but just in, in way of introduction, when John says that you have no need that anyone should teach you how this particular verse has been twisted by cults who say, we don't believe in pastors. We don't believe in any spiritual leadership in the church. It's me and my Bible under a tree. I have a verse I can point to that says, see, God says I'm in no need of teachers. Is that what John's saying? May it never be. Not only does it not agree with the rest of the, of the New Testament, but it doesn't agree even in this verse. John is saying, I am saying you have no need that anyone teaches you because that was the promise in Jeremiah 31. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor. And each his brother. In what context? In what context? Well, in the context of Jeremiah, it was concerning knowing the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. And Jesus, uh, and Jesus through Jeremiah, is actually saying that it's because everyone in the new covenant has an anointing. Everyone in the new covenant has the Holy Spirit. Everyone in them has a teacher. They will all be taught of God. They will all know me. And it's in that sense that John is saying, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Because you know it. Because if you're in the new covenant, you know him. And how often have we heard in 1 John him saying over and over again, verse 3 in chapter 2, and by this, we know that we have come to know him. Or verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Or verse 6 in chapter 2, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Because it's in this way that it will be identified if you know him. Knowing God is part and parcel to being a member of the new covenant. There are no members of the new covenant who do not know God. And that is what the false teachers who say we don't need to have anybody teaching us should hear. And what we can rightly say to that person who says, I don't need a teacher, is to say, have you examined yourself to see if you're in the new covenant? Let me teach you. Remember, the righteous is a guide to his neighbor. We should long, I know you do, long to be a guide to those around you who are perishing. Because you recognize what the Lord has done in your life, 
and plucking you as a brand out of the fire. And you see those perishing around you. And your prayer is that, Lord, use me as your vessel to save others. Help me to be a fisher of men. And if this wasn't clear enough, let us, again, compare Scripture with Scripture. And I want to compare this Scripture, this verse, with what John teaches in his Gospel. So if you could, turn to John's Gospel, and let's look at John chapter 13. John chapter 13 through chapter 17 comprises a good portion of Scripture in John's Gospel. And it's a rich record of our Lord Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. Have you, have you recognized that? That, verses, or that chapters 13 through 17 just concern the upper room? That should remind us that what is happening in the upper room is important. To cover that many, ver- to cover that many verses and chapters, we best listen. John chapter 13 through 17 is a rich record of our Lord Jesus and his disciples in the upper room before his death, burial, and resurrection and his sending of the Holy Spirit from heaven. And I believe what the Apostle John says here is the fruit of our Lord's teaching from that particular instruction that was received in the upper room. The only difference is that when John heard it at first, it was a promise. John gave a promise. I'm sorry, Jesus gave a promise in the upper room to his apostles. Now, when John's writing in his epistle, it's a reality. The promise has been fulfilled. And it's a, it's a present advantage to them in this, who are reading this epistle, who are hearing this epistle preached, and also an advantage to us. So what were some of those promises made by our Lord that are now being recalled and applied by the apostle John to those under his care? Well, firstly, again, consider the context of John 13. This I find very interesting as it corresponds to the epistle that we're reading. First, the context and the setting of the giving of these promises follows a warning to the twelve of an imposter who is among them. Judas, the one who would betray the Lord. Now, interesting, John now is citing the same promises, he will be, as a present help, a present reality, following upon a warning. I find that fascinating. It's almost as if there's a pattern here. That's the context. Second, who are the recipients of this promise? John tells us that Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. Where did we hear that? Oh, that's right. John. Chapter 2, verse 6 in his epistle. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. That's where John got at the upper room. Are there more correlations? The promise itself. Jesus said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Interesting. Because John calls the Spirit true. Whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. Interesting. There it is again. Knowing the Lord. You know him. For he dwells with you. And here it is. And will be in you. This is what John is saying. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. From the beginning, he says, this anointing you receive from him abides in you. That's what Jesus said in the upper room. It was a promise in the upper room. It's a reality now, after Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit from heaven by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So again, what does this mean? Well, we've already been kind of lacing through this whole explanation of what it means. It means that, brothers and sisters, you have a present real advantage in your spiritual battles. You have the full armor of God afforded to you in whatever you're going through. By the Spirit, by the anointing that you have. But it doesn't mean you don't need a teacher. Christ has gifted teachers to the church. If we are to say we need no teacher, what we're saying is I refuse that gift that Christ has given to his church. Because that is not our proper motivation. Our proper motivation isn't me and my Bible under a tree. The proper motivation is found in the very next verse. Verse 28. Read with me. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. The Apostle John is offering the same encouragement that he received from Jesus in the upper room. In John chapter 15, verse 4, in the upper room, here's what Jesus said. Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. This idea of abiding in the Lord, being connected to the vine that gives the life-giving juice, that supplies the fruit to the branches which we are. But previously... Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So even in the upper room, we see this, these themes that are present in John's epistle of abiding the Holy Spirit in them, this anointing, knowing the truth, even the second coming. And that was also given as an encouragement to the apostles there. And this is the confidence. This is the proper motivation that we should have as we go into battle with our spiritual armor. It's not by our intellect. And it's not even because of those teachers that we sit under. In the first century, remember, there was clamoring about, I, I, I'm of Paul. I'm of Peter. Some even said, I'm of Christ, as if they were going to limit him to just a teacher. Certainly, Peter and John and Paul and our Lord Jesus Christ were all teachers. Amen. But not talking about Christ, Peter and John and Paul were just human teachers. Yes, they were gifted by the Holy Spirit. Yes, they were gifted by Christ to the church. Yes, they were writing infallible scripture. But there was no competition among them. It wasn't as if one was higher than the other in the sense that one had an inordinate authority. They all had apostolic authority, even those apostles by whom we have no New Testament books had equal apostolic authority. But John is saying that we have something greater. You have no need that anybody teaches you in the sense that you have a greater teacher that abides in you. The Holy Spirit himself is greater than any human teacher you will ever sit under. And praise be to God that you have the Holy Spirit to help you and to teach you while you're being taught. Right now, the Holy Spirit is teaching you while I'm teaching you. But it's my prayer that he's protecting you from anything I may or may not say that is not true. It is my prayer that you forget everything 
that I say that is not true. Because I'm not teaching with the same authority. The Holy Spirit is the one who is teaching in His Word. By His Spirit, the Lord Jesus is teaching His people and guiding them. And I know this isn't a problem in this congregation, but let's get real practical. Sovereign grace that we prayed for this morning had more than one pastor. They had more than two pastors. They had more than three pastors. And it can be very easy for a congregation or those in the congregation to say, I like that pastor more. That He's the head pastor. Or, you know, yeah, they can all teach, but I really see the anointing on this pastor. No, the reality is, is that just like in the first century, there's no clamoring for who's above another. I don't want to get into a sermon of pastoral authority or ecclesiology, but it has a reference to the Holy Spirit. This is my point. The Holy Spirit who is in you is greater than any human teacher that is gifted to the church. And the Lord Jesus Christ... He is the grounds of our confidence. Dare we say, or may we never say, well, I I belong to this church, and I sit under the teaching of this pastor, as if you have some kind of spiritual advantage above one who sits under the teaching of another pastor in another church. In our culture, we certainly have celebrity pastors, and I know that those who would qualify as a celebrity pastor would shriek at that term. But with social media, we have great exposure. We see pastors who have amassed a great following even outside of the membership of their own congregation. And by the Spirit, these men can remain humble and say, no, I'm, I'm just a man who's been gifted by Christ to the church, to labor. I'm just an under-shepherd. It's in the chief shepherd in whom we should have our confidence. And John, without even making an apologetic for the, for the second coming, just says it as a matter of fact, so that when he appears, he didn't have to remind his hearers that there was a second coming. He didn't say, let me remind you, brothers and sisters, that Christ is coming back. No, he just very easily tr- segues from abiding in him, which is, again, what Jesus said to do in the upper room, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And that confidence we can have today. If Christ were to return today, are you standing in confidence that you hold, believe, and confess the true Christ, the true gospel, and that it's by him alone that you are saved? We've heard the saying before, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Are you trusting in Christ alone? Or are you trusting in Christ and something else? Many good things you can add to that list of something else. But if we have his anointing, the anointing of the Spirit, we know that those things, although are good, do not avail in our standing before him. Only Christ does that. And so, knowing that, our proper motivation, and that we have a real and present help in the midst of this real and present danger, John now is seeking to ground our confidence. Not necessarily grounding our confidence in Christ's second coming, but grounding our confidence that those who are trying to do us harm can be identified. So that we don't have to fear that we're going to be tossed by the winds of doctrine to and fro, but rather that we can have confidence, that we can identify such imposters, such false teachers, and that we ourselves will not be led astray by their false teaching. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is the ground of our proper confidence. John is assuring his readers that they can and they will recognize apostles if they apply this standard of measurement. And by the Spirit enabling them to do so, identifying the marks and the blessings of the new covenant. We've said this all the way back in our opening sermons on 1 John, those big theological words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Remember, orthodoxy has to do with doctrine, right doctrine. And orthopraxy has to do with right living. If you or anyone that you are questioning passes the test of orthodoxy and orthopraxy, there's no reason to think that they are not abiding in him. But if somebody does not pass the test of orthodoxy, teaches a different Christ, a different gospel especially, both those things are fundamental and non-negotiables, or teaches a different orthopraxy, you can live this way and it's not sinful, or it's sinful, but that doesn't really matter. If there's a minimization of sin, if someone is teaching wrong doctrine or wrong living, that's a red flag, and you know that. We live this way as brothers and sisters in Christ by this anointing that dwells in us. We, we I want to say instinctively, but it's not instinct. We spiritually know that when we hear something, it's like, well, you know, you can engage in this sin, and it's okay because you believe in Christ and you're saved. Immediately, a red flag goes up in our mind. That doesn't sound right. That's not true. Or, you know, Jesus, you know, he was um, a prophet. He, he was a great teacher, but he's not equal with the Father. Uh, red flag. And brothers and sisters, if you've had conversations in your evangelism and even in your fellowship with other brothers and sisters and things like this are said and these red flags go up, praise God. It's not just your intellect that is identifying these erroneous things. It's the Holy Spirit, this anointing that you have in you that is teaching you. And we can know because of that. We can know an imposter who teaches the wrong Christ. No matter how charismatic they are, how easy they are to listen to, how loving they are, if they're teaching the wrong Christ, you'll know through the application of God's word, by the Holy Spirit in you that helps you to recognize such things. Oh, it could be slippery. There could be things that you've heard where you're like, I'm not sure about that. Now, how often have we as a congregation, knowing the backgrounds in which we come from, holding on to certain things by tradition, have heard things that at first we said, no, nope, that's wrong. I know that's wrong. And later we come to realize, uh-oh, that's actually true. Why is that? Is not the Holy Spirit in you teaching you what's true and what's false? Yes, the Holy Spirit is. But brothers and sisters, we are, we are weak and we are sinful. Our flesh is, is but the vessel that this goes through. And that's why we have an infallible word before us. But how we understand it can be interpreted wrongly. I mean, we dare not say the scripture is not infallible because certain people come to the wrong conclusions. Certain teachers twist the scriptures. Does that make the scriptures not infallible? Does that make the scriptures not sufficient? Well, no. And the spirit who dwells in you even though you come to the wrong conclusions, sometimes, by God's grace, are corrected through the scriptures, does that mean that the spirit is not infallible and the greatest teacher that you have available? No, it just means that you're a sinner, you're weak, and you need a teacher. And the spirit is not only in us, teaching us, but then he teaches us through the word. When you read the scriptures, the Holy Spirit who's in you is working through what he wrote. There's a beautiful correspondence to the Spirit's work in your life as a Christian when you read the Scriptures. That you're not just reading something that is written by the Holy Spirit through men, but now you're reading it 
through the eyes of someone who has that same spirit indwelling you. That's a marvelous mystery and a marvelous advantage. And the unbeliever doesn't have that. And so John at the end is saying, you can know this. You can tell. You can recognize. You know, one illustration, it's a silly child's game, and I don't know which child came up with it or why it continues to be played, but why is it that children play a game where they close their eyes and they walk around trying to see if they can not bump into something? Especially the more children you have, the more silly that game becomes. And you see five, three, four, five, six, nine, ten kids with their eyes closed all walking around seeing if they can get to point A to point B without hitting something or hitting each other. Well, one thing is true. You can know who's actually peeking. You can tell who has one eye open, even if they don't want you to see. You can recognize it by the fruit. This, this child either has really good senses <laughs> or he has an eye open. And that's what John's saying. He's saying that you can recognize those among you and that you can be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We've been given spiritual eyes that can recognize truth from error. It's not infallible. We make mistakes. We have blind spots. And just because somebody has a blind spot doesn't mean they don't have the spirit. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. They will not go to another. Jesus' sheep know him. And because they know him, they will not abide with imposters. It's one thing to have a spiritual error, a blind spot. That's not of first importance. It's another thing to have a blind spot that is of first importance. That's a distinction we need to make. I don't want you to leave this morning engaging with those outside the body of Christ or even those who are in the body of Christ who are teaching a different Christ and a different gospel and say, well, I heard that we, we can have blind spots and so I can still have fellowship with you and call you brother or sister in Christ and have confidence that you're in him. No. There's a distinction to be made of first importance is Christ and the gospel. And this is what John is teaching in 1 John. He's saying, because out of these two things flow right living. And if you want to tell if somebody has a wrong view of the gospel or a wrong view of Christ, look at the way they live. You can recognize them. You can see if they have one eye open, but the other eye is closed. And this is a segue into the next section where John will then move on with confidence in this epistle, talking about us being children of God. And he's going to make a beeline to the Father. And when he says here in verse 29 that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, commentators struggle. Who's the him? Who are we born of? We talked about this anointing and this holy one being Christ. Christ is the one who anoints us with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who ascended into heaven after 40 days and 40 nights and sent the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, to his people on earth beginning at Pentecost, that one-time event. Is it Jesus? Is he the one who we've been born of? John quickly then turns to the Father in the next verse when he says in John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us. Commentators go back and forth. Some say it's the Father. Some say it's the Son. I think the point is it's God. The point is it's God. We've seen in other places of Scripture where Jesus is said to have a seed, right? Even the prophecies... In Isaiah, which says that he'd be cut off from the land of the living. His bones would not see corruption, the Psalms. He will see his seed, his children. We look at the Psalm that talks about children being a heritage from the Lord and how often that is used 
Corporately, and rightfully so, our children are a blessing from the Lord. But we looked at the Christological reading of that psalm and how that's all about Christ. That Christ has children. We are his offspring. We are his seed. And so there is a way to understand the end of this verse as applying to Christ. Christ is the one whom we are born of. Certainly, we understand this more naturally of the Father. This is what John segues into in the first verse of chapter 3. But suffice it to say, we're born of God. And everyone who practices righteousness, because they're clothed in Christ's righteousness, are born of God. And we can be sure of that. Oh, what confidence that we have, knowing that the same Spirit of God, who is indwelling the heart of John, the, 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 the soul's, in the first century, who were anointed by the Holy Spirit is anointing us today. Christ is anointing believers and calling them like he called the apostles. But we remember, when we are called as Christians, we need to hear the warning of persecution because we will experience it. But we also need to hear the encouragement that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. So often, Lord, we remember the, the verse that says, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending the Holy Spirit, anointing us with the helper who is greater than any human teacher who teaches us the things of God. We thank you for making each of us who believe in the true Christ and the true gospel members of the new covenant where you promised so long ago that this would be the result. That this is what made the old different from the new. Oh, Father, we are members of a better covenant. A covenant that was established and ratified in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use us to bring many more sons and daughters to glory. Use us in the midst of our spiritual warfare for the good of that lost soul. Protect us for the good of our own souls in all of this for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.